0: Over the next several weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to be studying the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah span uh, about 100 years of human history from 538 B.C. to 438 B.C. It's the same period of time, in fact, when uh, Esther's story unfolds in Persia. Esther's story begins around 483 B.C. This is a period of time we're looking at with Ezra and Nehemiah, and I think that it provokes a good, honest question. Uh, maybe some of you are wondering why or what or how. Uh, why, why look at 2,500 years ago here in 2022? Or what can I learn from words from 2,500 years ago? How on earth can these words meet me where I am at? And some of you ask those questions and they come from a place of um, just honest skepticism or honest doubt. You, you maybe are, are either perhaps even jaded towards the church or uh, reflecting on your own spiritual journey and wondering if Jesus is the answer. And so to think about words that are that old, you're wondering why, how, uh, how can they help me? And others of you ask the same questions, but from a different perspective. You look at your life, you look at the circumstances in your life, and you're like, well, is really Ezra and Nehemiah how I need to be encouraged by God right now? And so I wanna answer that question in a couple of different ways, the why Ezra and Nehemiah. The first is with this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Goes on to it so that the servant of God or the workman of God uh, can be thoroughly equipped for every work that God has has called us to. So we look at scripture and what Paul is writing about in that moment, what he had penned, the word scripture, it refers to the Old Testament scriptures here. In particular, that's all that Paul would've had at his disposal. Having been a Pharisee, he would have been familiar with the scrolls of uh, Moses, the words of Moses, the words of the prophets. And so right now, as Paul's life is unfolding, he's writing letters to churches that become part of our New Testament. Uh, Luke is even journeying with Paul on some of these journeys. Perhaps Luke's already started the initial manuscripts for the Gospel of Luke or uh, the story of the early church. But they don't have yet the New Testament as we think of it. All they had was the Old Testament included in that Old Testament were the words of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so on Paul's mind, as he writes to Timothy, in part are the words of Ezra and Nehemiah, that these words are breathed by God as a, and they're useful. There's a fundamental belief that we have as a church. And when you think of the church, we think of it in a couple of different ways. The most important way is this, is that the church is the people of God the people who have responded to God, the people who are following Jesus. And so the church isn't limited to Lebanon Christian Church. The church isn't limited to this time in history. The church are the people that have worshiped God and followed him throughout generations and will continue to do so. Uh, Of that, Lebanon Christian Church is just a very small part. But in our society today, we also think of the church as an organization. So when I say that that the word of God is living, it's active, it's uh, a core belief of our church that all of God's word is relevant. I'm talking about more the organizational level, but it's also the historical Christian level that the word of God is our authority. And so at Lebanon Christian Church, we believe that. We believe that God's word can teach us and meet us where we are. And so if you wonder why, why Ezra and Nehemiah? Why not somewhere else? Part of it's because we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful to guide you, meeting us right where we're at, in your spirit, right where you are, to hear and and eyes to see. Now, if you are more skeptical about the church or more jaded towards faith, then you probably expected that answer to come from a preacher, right? This is the why. So let me give you a second answer. The lives of the people that we'll see and uncover in Ezra and Nehemiah, they they were human beings like you. And yes, their lives were very different. None of us have lived in... uh, a formal exile. Uh, none of us have been, uh, I don't think, completely deported from the land that we know and our identity as people and, and put off into a foreign empire. Uh, we don't wear the same clothes. We don't eat the same foods. But at a deeper level, although our lives and our experiences are very different, the struggles we face as human beings in principle are often the same kings in exile, and they struggled in In Ezra, uh, they wrestled in their relationships. They expense, experienced difficulty and tragedy. I mean, we have in a whole account in Daniel of a man who was faithful and yet uh, his buddies are thrown into a fiery furnace. I mean, they, they, they knew difficulty. And, and I'm guessing as I look into your eyes and you look into mine and as you look into the mirror, You know difficulty in your own life. And while our exile may be different, I think there's a sense that we all know what captivity is like. Whether it's being captive to sin, captive to a relationship, uh, captive to other difficulties or mental health challenges or or other struggles. Uh, We know that. And so at a basic human level, what we'll see in Ezra and Nehemiah is a people who wrestle with things like you and I do. And the lessons that we learn about them and as deeply impact, and the tools that we see and so the words that yes, are ancient are still living and they can meet us wherever we are, whether we're middle school students, high school students, college students, young adults, middle-aged adults, elderly adults, they, they can help us and guide us and lead us. Ezra and Nehemiah really account for us an incredible comeback story. And I don't know about you, but I love a good comeback story. And I like it even better when I'm a part of that comeback story. And I think you'll find yourself in this story in the coming weeks as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah. We have all been beat down. We've all experienced doubts and disappointments and defeat. We all know what failed dreams and failed relationships and uh, failed careers and uh, broken uh, bodies, our health. We all know what that's like. And so what would it look like to have a comeback? The, the bottom line is that God, as we look to him and his grace and through his power, can help Nehemiah for the comeback and find renewed and find that same story for ourselves by, by the grace of God. And so why listen? Why keep showing up? Um, because I think in Ezra and Nehemiah you'll find you and you'll find the help you need to take that next journey In faith, for faith, uh, to come to God for the first time, or to become more faithful in your experience of God and His kingdom uh, in this world. So, if you have your Bibles, find Ezra, and we're gonna start there. Uh, Something I'll kind of give you a heads up on as we journey through Ezra and Nehemiah is that we're gonna look at both books probably every week. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were long thought of as being one single volume. In fact, it wasn't until Jerome, uh, who translated the Bible into Latin, which we call the Latin Vulgate, separated the books into Ezra and Nehemiah. Even in the Hebrew Bible to this day, they're treated as one. And so we're gonna treat Ezra and Nehemiah as this one single story that spans 100 years of Israel's history. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah celebrate very similar, if not the same themes, that again, show God's people who are in exile, show God's people who are suffering, and show how God, as they trust in his grace and power and commit to trusting and following him, authors this incredible comeback story. And as we look to his grace and power, he can author a comeback story in us. Here's how Ezra 1 begins. Look at the first three verses, but primarily verse 1 today. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. So here's the proclamation. We'll just look at the first part of it. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and may their God be with them. And the proclamation continues. And so let's, let's establish a little bit of a context here. What's happening? We're in 538 BC. This is the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, you may have studied in history, Cyrus the Great. This is the same Cyrus. 539 BC, Cyrus conquers Babylon, the famous empire ruled by men like Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Cyrus conquers them in 539 and in 538. He starts kind of establishing his new rule. So in the first year, this 539 to 538 BC, that's when this occurs. So why is that important? Cyrus, king of Persia, has overtaken the land of the Babylonians. Guess who are residing in the land of the Babylonians? The people of God, what we would call Israel. They were taken captive between 600 and 586 B.C. when the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem and ended up burning it down. And the people were taken into... It seems that one of Babylon's primary um, you know, methods of uh, world conquest was when they went into a new nation, they would burn it, they would destroy it, they would leave it in ruins and in rubble, and they would take the people and distribute them throughout the Babylonian empire. This was their way of destroying their national identity destroying the faith, their spiritual identity, and kind of leaving them as these servants who are dependent upon Babylon. And so when Cyrus, king of Persia, takes over Babylon, he now inherits the cities, the towns, the people, of which the people of God, the Hebrew people, the Israelites are a part. As we continue, it says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. So Cyrus' heart is moved by God to fulfill the words of Jeremiah. So what were the words of Jeremiah? Again, looking back to what led to this exile, find Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah was called as a prophet somewhere around 627 B.C., He was called to speak God's words, to be God's mouthpiece, that's what the prophets were, to the people of God living in Jerusalem and Judah. Jeremiah's message, if you've ever read uh, his book of prophecy, is incredibly hard. Um, He was given a hard task. He was punished for the hard task. He delivered words of judgment, words of coming punishment. The people of God had been living rebelliously as a whole, Uh, Not every individual. Again, we have examples of people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, people like Jeremiah who were faithful to God. But as you looked at the whole of life among God's people, they had turned from him. They were living in rebellion. They were disobeying him. And so God raises up Jeremiah to bring this hard word that, that one day they will be taken away as captives because of their sin. And here's where some of that occurs. Jeremiah chapter 25 earlier around verse 9 if you want to look look behind it, it talks about Nebuchadnezzar being raised up and here's what will happen verse 11 this whole country speaking of Judah the word Jerusalem is this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations not just Judah but all the nations that Babylon will conquer will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years Verse 12, but when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. And so what's happening with Cyrus is to fulfill what God has already said would happen. And what did God say would happen during the Babylonian age, preceded the Persian age? He said, the people will be taken into captivity. They'll be taken into captivity for 70 years. And then what will happen? He will punish the king of Babylon, Chapter 29 of Jeremiah elaborates on this some more. For some of you, Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of your absolute favorite Bible verses. Um, I would encourage you to remember, it makes it even more powerful, when we remember what the context of where, these verse, where this verse comes. Let's go to verse 10, Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord says, again, through the prophet Jeremiah. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, when those 70 years of living in exile, captivity, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So here, as we look at these early verses of Ezra, what we see is what's happening in this period of Ezra and Nehemiah is that God is fulfilling his prophecy. The people sinned, they rebelled. Again, collectively, not every individual was into captivity, this, this blatant rebellious but collectively, the nation had, and so they were brought into captivity in Babylon. It was it was foretold through Jeremiah that would last seventy years. At the end of the seventy years, they would be rescued. Well, what happens at the end of the seventy years? Cyrus takes over Babylon as the king of Persia, and so what's happening through Cyrus when God moves the heart of the king? is to fulfill what God said would happen. And so God's continuous story is continuing to unfold with him as the incredible author. God stirs the heart of Cyrus. Here's something that's fun. I'm pretty sure that Cyrus had no idea that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob uh, was behind what was happening in his heart. He just thought he had a new national strategy. You can go to the British Museum today, find room 52, and in room 52 of the British Museum, you will find the artifact that's going to appear on the screen. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It talks about the ancient cuneiform Five th- on that cylinder as it is when he declared not just for Judah, not just for the people of God, but for all of the nations taken by Babylon that they could go back to their places, their national borders, and they could reestablish themselves and their religions. I don't think Cyrus is doing this because he's obedient to the God of Israel. He's doing it because it's a great play. Whereas Babylon ruled by strong arm tactics, Cyrus says, I'm going to appeal to the hearts of the people. So they'll follow me. They'll listen to me as their ruler because I'm gonna let them go back and reestablish themselves within reason. But what Cyrus doesn't realize is that the God of all people the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God, our God, the God of Jesus Christ is working to accomplish his purposes. And so under his rule, then the people get to come back. People who are in exile, people who are disoriented, people who are living in darkness, people who are suffering because of people who are finding themselves are invited into the, their national identity story as they trust and follow God through God's power, how God stirs the heart of Cyrus. In fact, later in this series, we're going to look at how God is still at work, even through earthly leaders that we struggle to accept and their actions disturb us, that God has always been at work in the midst of what's happening in our world. If you haven't caught this before, when I've said it, I'll share it again. We have to remember that all of history is really his story. So even within the word history, we have a reminder that this is God's story. It's his story that's unfolding. And so we see these themes today as we start that there is an exile and that as the people in exile turn to the one who rescues, it's by his grace, by his power as they trust and follow him, that he begins to author this incredible comeback story. And just so it's in Nehemiah as well. Just as thumb- we we have a hint of this, Nehemiah, who comes to Jerusalem uh, around 445 BC, here's what happens: it "says the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I was question- and I questioned them." about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then we have a record of Nehemiah's prayer and we'll look at that in a future week. So here in Nehemiah, some years later, so 538 BC, Cyrus takes over Babylon, the first and another guy from exile under the leader, and they begin reestablishing themselves, laying the foundations for the temple, they face opposition, another theme that we'll look at later in the series. And then in 458 BC, Ezra returns with some exiles, and then in 445 BC, Nehemiah returns. But over all these things is this idea that people are coming back from exile. And as they seek him, Remember those words from Jeremiah the prophet? Seek me, seek me with all your heart. As they seek him, he authors this incredible comeback story. As we look at Nehemiah 1, just briefly, it says, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, that's verse 1. You may say, well, what's the 20th year? The 20th year of what? Well, if you peek ahead to chapter 2, verse 1 of Nehemiah, it tells us that it's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. In these hundred years of Persian history that are unfolding as the exiles return, you have Cyrus the Great, then Darius, then Xerxes, then Artaxerxes. All men that you can read about in what we would call extra-biblical resources, those resources even outside. Of, uh, he has a question for him: what, What's going on in, in Jerusalem? What's going on with the exiles? How's this comeback story unfolding? And, and Hanani says, bro, it's not good. It's a loose translation, by the way. Uh, It's not good, bro. The the, the gates are destroyed. They've been ruined by fire. Uh, It lies in ruins. And so because Nehemiah knows that there's something better for his people, he prays to God. How do people come back from exile? By trusting in the grace and the power and committing to trust and follow the God who saves. So this is a story that's unfolding in in Ezra and Nehemiah. People who have been experiencing difficulty begin a comeback story. And my hope is that over the coming weeks, as we look into Ezra and Nehemiah and we bounce back and forth between them, we look at these common themes, that you'll find the tools you need and the lessons that are available from God's story as you respond to his grace, as you live in his power, as you trust and follow him. Now, one of the things that often stands in our way um, from really seeing how this stuff connects is uh, really seeing how these stories we see in Scripture fit in with the greater story of what's unfolding in the world that we've seen and and read about in our history classes. So let me just give you a brief recap here. 100 years of history, 538 B.C. to 438 B.C., the same period of time in which things happened for Queen Esther, that's recorded in the book of Esther. Her story begins around 483 BC. So 538 BC, Cyrus issues his proclamation. Bazar, along with his good friend or a helpful like leader, Zerubbabel, bring the first wave of exiles back. They try to establish the, the foundations of the temple. The work is stopped because of op- opposition. Eventually, the temple work continues and it's completed. Uh, Later on, 458 B.C., uh, Ezra leads another group of exiles to Jerusalem. And then again in 445 B.C., Nehemiah does. And these are these three phases of people making this comeback authored by God. Now, how does that fit into the greater picture? Maybe this will be helpful. Here's Here's another timeline. We know that approximately around 2630 B.C., the great pyramids were built in Egypt. You've probably read that in your history books. It was about 550 some years later when Abram or Abraham was called by God around 2090 BC, 2091 BC. To give you some perspective, it was around 2000 BC that Stonehenge was built. So these things are all happening in the world in similar times. 1875 BC, Jacob and his sons moved to Egypt. Maybe you recall the stories at the end of Genesis, where there was a famine in Egypt, and Joseph rose to prominence, and his his brothers are able to come and settle in the land of Goshen along with his father, and that leads to the Israelites multiplying in Egypt, which then leads to their enslavement. Moses delivers Israel from Egypt, 1446 B.C. after his time serving his father-in-law in in the desert. 1406 BC, after those 40 years of wandering, maybe you recall in Exodus, the people didn't believe that God was giving them the promised land. They rebelled and said, they had to spend time wandering in the wilderness. Well, finally, under Joshua's leadership, they enter in 1406. The people then again turn from God. So you have 1375, around 1043 BC, the reign of the judges. To give you some perspective of what's happening in the world, 1358 BC is when King Tut is famously buried with his treasure. 1043 BC, the heir of the kings begins. We have Saul's reign, then David's reign, then Solomon's reign. Solomon hands over the kingdom to his son Rehoboam, and Rehoboam doesn't seek the Lord like he should. And so in 931 BC, the kingdom is divided. So all of God's people are now living in a northern kingdom called Israel, the capital of Samaria, and a southern kingdom called Judah, with the capital of Jerusalem. All God's people, but even within God's people, they're at war with themselves. It's an- To give you some perspective, in 800 B.C. is when Homer's Iliad and Odyssey are first written down. It was an oral story prior to that. 739 B.C., Isaiah becomes a prophet. He's what we consider one of our major prophets, not because he was more important, uh, but because he has more words. And, And so he begins to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom falls at the hands of the Assyrian leader, Sennacherib and people are taken to captivity. But here's how the Assyrians are different than the Babylonians. The Assyrians' method of conquest was that they would take people away and they would mix up all the people they had kind of ransacked and conquered and they would send them back to those areas. And so what happens is that some of the people of God living in Israel that were taken away get blended with a bunch of families that Assyrians had conquest over elsewhere and they all come back to resettle what would have been the land where God's people were. This is part of the backstory as to why the Samaritans were so despised in Jesus' day, because these are people who had some of the heritage of Israel, but it entered 628, and so in the eyes of some of the Jews weakened the faith of God's people. 627 BC, Jeremiah is called as a prophet. And in 586 BC, Jerusalem falls officially. Around 600, 605 BC is when a first wave of exiles were taken from Jerusalem, and it's when Daniel himself was taken during that time. 539 BC, Cyrus defeats Babylon, we've talked about that this morning, and then you see within this greater story of what God is doing in the world, this period with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And you fast forward another 450 years, and who do you have show up to this faithful Jewish couple? Jesus, he's born in Bethlehem. Around 27 AD, Jesus launches his public ministry. Around 30 A.D., he's crucified. Within years, Paul is converted who we get most of our New Testament from. Then I just added a couple fun facts, and 80, 50, 50 came around and started using soap. 87 said good things, so Saul, Paul, I remember reading about that in your history books. And we fast forward another 2,000 years, and here you are today, watching online, listening here in person. And the God who's been authoring this story since the beginning is still authoring this story. And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah play a pitiful, uh, pitiful, it is a pitiful story of exile. But they play a powerful role in what God was doing to accomplish his purposes because in reestablishing his people, he made a way for Jesus to be born in the area that scripture had prophesied to save the world and include more than just Israel in his plans, to include you and me. So I wanna share with you just to connect the dots. And, and the point that I hope you get is that while maybe as I mentioned Ezra and Nehemiah 25 minutes ago, you thought, come on, like we're living in a world we're all trying to make a comeback. These are the struggles I face from a pandemic. We're trying to make struggles I face as a thesis in our lives. These are just the, like, like, how can Ezra and Nehemiah work? Well, I hope you see because the God who is at work authoring that comeback story is the God that's been at work throughout all of history, and is the God that will continue to work in your life as you respond to his grace, as you trust in his power and live in his power, and God creates an incredible comeback story in you and through you. But here's an important point of clarification. Often when we celebrate comeback stories, we celebrate those things that look like success in the eyes of the world. A comeback story is great when someone reaches a position of prominence, and, or, they, or they have a lot of wealth, or their health is completely restored. Well, that might happen sometimes in God's comeback stories, but God is most concerned about is your heart. And as we respond to him, as he brings us from the exile of our sin, the exile of other people's sin, uh, the exile of failed dreams and broken dreams and failed relationships and broken relationships, full thing health and broken health, is that often that comeback story includes much more meaningful things, like a sense of great purpose and a sense of hope and a sense of joy and a sense of peace that guide us in the midst of a world that in itself is an exile until Jesus returns. God is authoring an incredible comeback story of which you and I get to play an incredible part as we seek him. So again, I don't know where you are as we launch into Ezra and Nehemiah. I don't know what your exile is. Maybe again, maybe it's, it's your own sin similar to Israel's that has left you in a place. Relationships have been ruined. Life has been destroyed because of your choices. God can still author a comeback story in you. Maybe it's because of circumstances beyond your control that affect your body, that affect your career, that affect your life or your other relationships. God can still author a comeback story as we trust in him. I want to take you back to those words of jeremiah that ezra to launch into being fulfilled for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord again written to people in exile so if you find yourself there these can apply for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope in a future and how does this unfold you will call on me and come and pray to me and will listen and i will listen to you You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. You want a parallel to this? Think about the words of Jesus. The one who asks, receives. The one who seeks, does what? He finds. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and these things will be added to you. If God is going to author an incredible comeback story in your life and you find yourself within this greater story that he's been authoring since the beginning, it'll come because we seek him and we seek his ways and we seek his truth and we seek his promise and we seek to live life his way and God restores He is the king of the comebacks. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for these old, old words. the words that were inspired by your same life-giving spirit, words that you've preserved and even used to inspire revival in your church over the last 2,000 years. And God, I pray that in the coming weeks that you would give us open hearts and minds and that you would inspire an incredible revival in your people here at Lebanon Christian Church A revival in our community, that you would call people to yourself, that there would be comeback stories that begin and are celebrated uh, over the next several weeks. God, thank you. Thank you for being faithful and giving us second chances. It's in your name we pray and trust. In the name of Jesus, amen. Will you please stand with us?